Welcome everyone to another episode of The Scuttlebutt. I'm your host, Sean Hall, Director of Programming with the Veterans Breakfast Club. We're a nonprofit in Western PA whose mission is to create communities of listening around veterans and their stories to connect, educate, heal, and inspire. Today's guest is the founder and executive director of Team Foster, Nick Learman. Team Foster's mission is to fight for the unmet needs of injured and disabled veterans by bringing together civilians, veterans, and highly trained service dogs. Not only that, uh, they try to provide other services for veterans as well. Why is it called Team Foster? Nick's battle buddy, uh, who he went through ROTC with, Eric Foster, uh, was KIA in Iraq. And Nick decided to name his organization uh, in honor, in memory of Eric. Uh, we're going to dive into Nick's service, uh, which started uh, back in 2000. We're going to talk about his service, how it changed him, and how he eventually came to found uh, Team Foster, and all of the incredible things that they have going on. Nick has a lot of passions, including cycling. He's merged that with Team Foster, uh, and also just uh, being there for his teammates, which is something that Eric imparted on him uh, throughout their friendship. Uh, I hope that you enjoy this episode. I hope you check out their website, teamfoster.org. Nick has a lot of energy and he's very passionate. And I also appreciated Nick talking about Eric, why the organization is named after him, how he honors Eric through this organization. Please like, share, subscribe, ring the bell on YouTube so you're the first to know whenever we release new episodes. We are fast approaching our 100th episode. And if you need to get in touch with me, you can always do that at Sean, S-H-A-U-N at veteransbreakfastclub.org. Thank you so much for supporting the podcast. Enjoy the show. All right. Uh, joining us uh, today is uh, Nick Learman. Nick, uh, you and I have had some collaborations in the past, especially with your uh, rough ride here in Pittsburgh. We're excited to dive into that. Um, but I'm so excited to have you a part of the Scuttlebutt podcast today. Thanks for joining me. Awesome, Sean. Thanks for having me, man. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, yeah. I always kind of jump out of the cannon whenever uh, uh, whenever we start the podcast. So I'm sure people are listening. They're like, geez, Sean's got a lot of energy. But it's Friday. We're recording on a Friday. And the Phillies are in the playoffs, so can't complain. Um, good stuff happening. Uh, but Nick, uh, you know, before we get into Team Foster, your organization, um, I want to speak a bit about your particular service, because I think it's important to talk about sort of your journey um, and how you got to where you are now. Um, so give us a bit of background, please. Uh, sure. So I come from a, uh, a long line of service members. Uh, both my parents were vets. Uh, my grandfather, my great uncle, Korea, World War II, Vietnam, first Gulf, uh, my uncle was a first Gulf War vet. Uh, but it was never something that was pushed on me or, or, or really even talked about like in significant detail growing up. Um, but I'm also the product of neither of my parents had college degrees. So um, I started college in 1996, 1997, um, with no real idea of how I was going to pay for it. Um, oh. so got to, I, I went to the university of Pittsburgh and I was on Pitt's campus, um, without really a plan per se. Like my parents had never even been to the campus. <laughs> I just applied, <laughs> brought my stuff, showed up and like started taking classes. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, and this cute girl walks into a class of mine wearing an army PT uniform. Uh, so I, uh, my arm, my uncle was an army vet. Uh, so I used that as an excuse to chat her up. Mm -hmm. And in that process, uh, found out that, uh, the army would one pay for me to go to school. Uh, and two, I could major in whatever I wanted. And three, I didn't even have to go on active duty. Uh, and okay. to me, uh, my 18 year old brain, that sounded like free money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so next, you know, next day or later on that week, walked down to the recruiter's office at, at the, in the ROTC building. And, uh, next thing I knew I signed up I was on scholarship by the next year. Um, and away you go, away you go. So did uh, you t spend any time thinking about, it? did you talk to your parents about it? Did you, or you just, you know, thought it through and said, I'm gonna I, do it. I, I was pretty independent, dude. Um, uh, I'm, I'm the oldest of four and all three of my siblings are, uh, seven to 13 years younger than me. So like when I was in college, uh, my parents were fully engaged elsewhere. Yeah. Um, so no, <laughs> I don't know that I put a lot of thought into it. I, I don't, I don't remember calling anybody other than tell them I was going to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. And I, 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 and had really no idea what I was getting into. Um, so yeah. And, and then full steam ahead and so, long story short, I ended up falling in love with it. Um, I had no intentions of really taking it that seriously, but, um, very quickly, um, uh, you know, relatively speaking, but certainly before I, well, before I graduated, um, I wanted to go on active duty. Um, I loved putting on the uniform. I loved what the army stood for. Um, you know, and then things went from there. Was that a process? So you, you know, it took a while to sort of get to that sort of love affair with, with, with the military. Was it the, and what was it about it that you were like, this is for me? 
I, I think for me, the journey um, was I, I had not, uh, I was a little tall for my age up until early in high school until everybody else got tall. Um, I, I was and smart enough to be able to take advanced classes and not try that hard um, and get okay grades, not phenomenal grades. Um, and I'd skated my way through everything, right? I was, uh, I got in a little bit of trouble, but not enough double, trouble to get arrested or to really like draw my parents ire. Um, so everything just came easy. Mm -hmm. uh, I showed up to college without much of a work ethic, uh, not particularly concerned about anybody who wasn't Nick Learman. Um, and I, I weighed about 150 pounds and I used to, uh, the way I tell people is I was a smart mouth and that was about it. Um, I got to college, I joined ROTC and I remember very early on, um, in high school, I'd never ran more than a mile. Um, this is a very long answer to your short question. That's but, no, I, this is why I have a podcast so I can ask those questions and then you just take uh, the mic and run. Yeah. So I, I'd never run more than a mile in high school. And, um, mm -hmm. it was, you know, I played some sports, but not at a, a high level. Um, and it was, you know, like the presence physical fitness test was, <laughs> was that was it. Right. Yeah. Um, and I get to college, I, I, sign up for ROTC. I wasn't even on scholarship yet. And, uh, about a month after I signed up there, like, okay, there's a 10 K, uh, it's a Pittsburgh 10 K. I don't even remember what race it was, but the, the entire ROTC battalion was going to do it as a unit. And I remember my captain that was in charge of my class, Captain Walton saying, uh, walking up to him being, Hey, I, sir, I don't think I can do this. Like I'm, you know, I, I don't really run. This isn't really my bag. I need, it's going to take some time to get ready. He's like, no, you'll be good. I'm like, sir, I was like, sir, you don't really like, I don't, I don't think you're understanding. Like I, I can't run six miles. Like that's, that's a long friggin' way. Like I, I don't, yeah. I don't, I just don't think this is for me. He's like, no, I, he's like, yeah, I don't think you're picking up what I'm putting down. Like you can do it and you will. <laughs> <laughs> and that was sort of like, that was a jumping off point to realizing that if I worked at something, if I practiced, if I put in the time, if I actually put forth some effort and stopped focusing on what I couldn't do, mm. but what I could try, what I could work on, um, turns out you could, right. turns out you could do those things. You could, you can achieve more. You can be bigger and stronger and faster and smarter and harder working and more effective, all of those things. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I don't know why I, that's not something that I ever, you know, I, I just never appreciated before. And through that process, I, you know, I was surrounded by amazing people, um, not the least of which was Eric Foster, who I'm sure we'll talk, we'll, I know we'll talk about in a little bit, um, who were one really good people, love to work hard, love to have a good time. And so when you're in that environment and you get to put the work in all the time, it's contagious, right? You work, you see the, the results and it makes you want to work more. And then you work more and you see bigger results. It makes you want to work even harder. And I rolled out of college, like a bona fide type A personality. Um, <laughs> and I, I, you know, so, so like from the physical side, I put on 45, 50 pounds of muscle. Uh, I was like sub 10% body fat, pushing around tons of weight. Um, it was to the point that like my dad, I found out years later, my dad thought, uh, I was on steroids, uh, <laughs> but I was also, I was faster. And then I was, but I was also like working harder. I was holding down a part-time job and doing ROTC and taking all my classes, um, and I enjoyed the process uh, and, um, and I enjoyed being around those people and people who were like-minded um, and it's contagious, right? Like you want, you, you get in and once you're part of that culture, then you want to, you want to be a part of the culture. And then, you know, by the time graduation rolled around, it was like, I was like, dude, I, I want to go on active duty, like sign me up. Um, so yeah, so that was, um, I, that was for me, that was like sort of the process. It was, it was not a short process. It took me, you know, I, I getting up, you know, getting up at 6 a.m., 5.30, 6 a.m. as a college student is just not brutal, right? Yeah. It's so I, it is ingrained on me, the brute, like cold, dark mornings getting up and on campus and you don't see a soul. Yeah. Um, and that For anybody like, listening in like Texas, that's what we have here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. <laughs> like you yeah. hit October, it's cold, dark mornings for six uh, months. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, and I, I had some, I had some experiences, like I remember, you know, all of those sort of the luxuries that some of your other students have, like, I feel like ROTC students and like college athletes don't necessarily have the same experience, right? They're, it's a little bit different. Um, so for instance, I remember there was a day, it was a Friday, Thursday night, going out Thursday night was a big night to go out when I was in college. I, I, I think it still is. Um, and I, I wake up on a Friday morning to my roommate shaking me and going, Hey, 
uh, there's some guys in uniform in the living room. <laughs> uh, and I am hung over like no one's business. Uh, and I get out there and there's uh, two cadets. And it turns out I was not the only cadet not to show up. So my, the, our instructor literally got the cadets that were there. And then PT was just running from dorm room to dorm room, waking up all the hungover drunk people <laughs> and then taking us all to the track and running intervals until we puked. So oh god, uh, it's a good time. Yeah. Uh, well, obviously, maybe not so much. Didn't feel like a good time in the moment, but uh, it makes for a good story. But it teaches you a lesson. You know, yeah, it, it shows you that you're responsible, you know, yeah. and that's all, should, that was probably the hardest thing about getting up that early in college is just like you came out and you're like, I'm free. I can do whatever I want. There's no parent here to tell me what to do. And but wait, you know, I have to be responsible for myself. Yeah. And it, it's, uh, and I think that it's like one of those things that attaches you to the people, you know, like, you know, we weren't serving technically, we were, in, you know, just cadets then, but attaches you to those people going through that experience because yep. there's everyone else is, they're all sleeping in, man. They're all hanging out. They're drinking till all hours. And sometimes I drank till all hours too, but then I was up at 5.30, 6am, yep. you know, going and running my tail off. Mm -hmm. Um, but it, it's, then you, you start to be, you know, becomes like a point of pride and becomes be something that you really, you know, you feel good about yourself when, you know, now I'm at a point where like, I love getting up before everybody else is up and like, mm -hmm. I'm out on the trail, putting in a run and I'm the only person out there. Like that makes me feel good. Mm -hmm. uh, and how so. many miles are you up to then when you go out now? Yeah. Or back then. No, like, I mean, uh, now I'm training for a half iron. So that's like a, an adult new project uh, a front training for a half iron man in december so a half iron man is how long uh 70.3 miles total it's a one and a quarter swim swim 56 on the bike and then a half marathon run see that back then you think like six miles i can't do that right like six miles no way yeah. <laughs> it changed, six miles it, it, drop in the bucket now it even changed my mindset right it even changed like doing new things now it's like okay now that this could be fun this could be a process this is something now uh, now you know it's 20 years later, but now I recognize, Hey, no, I, I can't do that now, but if I work at it, if I plan to train, I put the time in, you know, there's a lot of things out there that you can do. Was there a piece of, you, you strike me as a guy who uh, is pretty competitive. Was it part of that as well in ROTC? Like, you know, I'm going to compete with the guys next to me and try to be better than I, them as well. I am uber competitive, Sean, you are, you are absolutely correct. Um, and yeah, that, that's, um, so for instance, Eric, he's a good example. Um, Eric, I, while I was spending a lot of time in the weight room and piling on muscle mass. Eric was not that strong, but he was way faster. Mm -hmm. So we were constantly, you know, there's constantly chirping back and forth. Um, you know, he will be out on the track or running and, you know, he's smoking me and just, I'm, you know, I'm getting annihilated, but then we're doing, you know, we're having doing pushups or doing something that's more strength-based mm -hmm. and I would hundred percent be running my mouth and, and talking, you know, a lot of smack, um, you know, out ruck marching. There was a, yeah, this was a, so there's a, Eric and I had gotten to this thing where we were doing it our junior year. We were doing, going on a rock march every week as part of the training process. Um, and you know, in uh, four or five miles, nothing insane. Um, but it was always, the rock marches were always sort of level set at like, you know, towards the middle to the bottom of the physical fitness level for the group. Um, and Eric and I typically ran near the top. So to make it challenging, we started going into the weight room beforehand and putting in weights and you know, 20 pounds at first, 35 pounds. So we get out there the one day and I have 115 pounds in my rock on top of all my gear. Oh my God. And Eric's got something similar. Mm -hmm. and we're out there rocking and we're right behind same Captain Walton, same guy that was, you know, the guy that told me I needed to run the 10 K mm -hmm. short little nugget of a guy. He's only like five, four, five, five, but really, uh, really, uh, great fitness level looks at me and he's like, Learman, you're not even trying. Are you? I was like, no, sir. <laughs> <laughs> and gives us the, the signal to double time. And we ran the entire way back. So like uh, three miles yeah. in boots with a hundred probably 145 pounds on my back. Um, that was brutal, man. Yeah. Yeah. I don't even, how did I get, I don't know how to get on that story, but, um, talking about sort of the early, the early years for Nick, the, you know, yeah, getting, getting your feet wet. It's definitely sort of, you know, uh, learning a lot about myself and then sometimes, you know, you, you know, you, so the ebbs and flows, like you get, feel really good, feeling really strong, feeling really, uh, your ego is real pumped up and then you get humbled by another experience, right? Uh, you know, and you get put in check a little bit, which is always a, a healthy process. Did you feel like going active duty was part of that with get, getting put in check? That was a different, a different level. It was definitely a very, it was an eye opening experience for me. Um, so there are a lot of different reasons. I mean, I think the first was 
there is nothing or I'm not sure what could prepare you to be a, you know, 22 ish, um, you'll just kid fresh out of college. And the first thing they do is they put you in charge of 25, 30 folks. Um, so I'm a platoon leader the first day I show up to my unit. Um, and that's at that, listen, uh, leading in in a classroom and and talking about it or leading your peers is very, 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 very different than leading a, you know, 30 people of all ages, all backgrounds, all experience levels, you know, like your, my platoon sergeant was an E7, you know, he'd been in the military for 16 years and I'm supposed to provide guidance to him on what to do. Like, get out of here. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, you know, but then down to like brand new privates who I maybe actually did know more than they did. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was, that was a, an eye-opening experience. I think just from a professional and people management slash people interaction, interpersonal skills type level. Um, and then I came on active duty in May. I reported to my first duty station in December, right before Christmas of 2000. And so 9-11 happened nine months after I'd been uh, on my first, in my first active duty unit. Um, and that changed everything. I, changed. You, I always like to ask is, uh, you know, we have a fair amount of post 9-11 vets on and I was kind of, especially the ones that started prior to 9-11. Did, how did the military change for you when 9-11 happened? But when you joined, I mean, it was pretty much peacetime. There wasn't much going on. There were a couple conflicts of different things happening, but like nothing to the scale of post 9-11. Right. So, yeah. So like, did you think when you went active duty, it was like, eh, I mean, if there's a war, there might be something small, but like, you know, 9-11 happens. It changes everything. Yeah. I think one, I think one of the things I always like to recognize and, and, and shout out is to, is to all of those folks that signed up after 9-11, right? Every single one of them knew what I was, they were getting into. There was no question. You know, when we, the minute we invaded Iraq, it was game on, you know, even before that, we had been in and out again, Afghanistan, smaller levels. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was not me. I, I listen, I backed into it. I, I love the army. I, I, philosophically, I was all about it. Uh, but I had no visions that I was actually going to ever, uh, that there was going to be a conflict or at least it didn't, not in a way that was real, I guess, yeah. and like, palpable. Um, so for me, it was, you know, first nine months of the unit, like in my feet wet as a platoon leader, I was in a Patriot missile systems unit. So I had to lead my platoon, but I also had to operate the system itself and, you know, battery table qualifications. Um, so that was always the focus. It was just like, oh no, I'm, I'm going to get really good at like playing these, you know, computer games basically on the mm-hmm. Patriot system. And that was it. It, 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 again, it just, it was real. Like, you know, you're actually doing it you're actually yeah. maintaining equipment, going out the field exercise and doing it, but it's, it changed on nine 11, right? Nine 11 hits. It's three o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, when the first tower gets hit in Germany, where I was stationed. Yeah. Um, and I I still remember vividly walking down the hall, and there was a radio operator that worked for me. Um, him and another guy in the, there was a room, a comms room, that we had a bunch of stuff. And he's in there just sta- sitting, him and the other guy sitting around a radio. Um, and he, this guy's furlong was his name, uh, never was working, never was working. Like, he just always had to ride him. Yeah. Um, so I, I walk past and I see him just like sitting there listening to the radio and I yell at him. I was like, dude, turn it off, get to work. Let's go. And they're like, sir, a plane hit the, uh, hit the towers or world trade center. I'm like, okay, like, let's go. <laughs> like it's got to get done. Yeah. Um, uh, not, you know, in my mind at that point, I was like, oh, a Cessna plane, you know, that's I, what I, everybody you know, thought first right. day, first thing they heard, it was like, oh, that that's terrible. But you know, yeah. So, you know, so we kind of then went back to being relatively the, and just where our equipment was, we, we weren't cut off from the rest of the world, but you know, cell phones weren't really a thing, mm-hmm. you know, email wasn't all, you know, wasn't used the way it is now. Um, so it, it took an hour, hour and a half after that to, to all of a sudden you start getting, you start finding out what's happening. Um, and we'd actually gotten released for the day. Um, and then very shortly after, you know, your phone blows up, you get, start getting called back in and that's when everything changed, right? It went from, you know, back and forth to my apartment to work, you know, like sort of just like a day job, probably like nine, most people, nine people out of 10 have, yeah. um, to sleeping in my office, locked on post out, locked and loaded with a M16 standing guard outside our guard, our post the next day. And we went from operating Patriot systems to 
uh, becoming like more traditional foot soldiers and providing security in that fashion and right. roving patrols on the concerns, which is the, the little, little bases in, in Germany. Um, yeah. And then, and then it was, yeah, then it was like, okay, when's the next shoe going to drop? Yeah. We, you know, we all knew there were small, you know, spec ops folks going in Afghanistan and doing things there and, you know, right. missiles were being launched across the world and all that. But the expectation, if not, maybe even the hope was that we were going to be needed. And did you feel like you were ready to go? Like a lot of, a lot of guys would say like, yeah, we got attacked. And I was like locked and loaded, ready to do whatever needed to be done at that point. Um, you know, I, what was your I, feeling during those first couple of weeks after? Um, mentally, I definitely felt ready. Like I was, I felt like, like, and I think we, you know, I think there was one of the, it's an, a horrific event, but one of the, those moments we look back at as Americans and everybody was on the same page. I think, you know, we all. And when you sign up for the army, like you want to do your job, you don't, nobody wants to go to war. Nobody like, well, maybe not nobody, but uh, very few people, you know, want to go far away or wreak havoc, but you want to do your job. You spend all this time training. Yeah. Um, and so at least what I felt was that that's what I wanted to do. Like, I, dude, like somebody needs to go send me, you know, let me be, go represent our country and take care of business. Uh, where is Eric uh, Foster along at this point? So you, you were in ROTC with him? And then... Yeah. So, yep. So we were in the same, uh, I was a Pitt student. Eric was a Duquesne student. We were in the same ROTC program commissioned on the same day, May 12th of 2000. Um, Eric was, uh, I was a Patriot Missile System guy. Eric was an army, armor, got selected to serve as an armor officer. So he did his, so at this point in time, he's at, uh, he got stationed at Fort Hood. Um, and then, so we stayed in loose contact, but, you know, obviously, you know, I'm on the other side of the planet. Um, but then when we were leading up, so Oh three, obviously the invasion's going to happen in March, mm -hmm. uh, leading up to that, we knew we were getting tapped. Um, and our unit was assigned to provide some, so we were a core asset and our battalions would get divvied up to, to uh, defend different, or uh, support different divisions. Our battalion got assigned to uh, first AD, first armored division, which was Eric's division. Um, so it was one of those moments, like we, I remember exchanging emails with him that, so our units, the plan was to go base, uh, stage in Turkey, provide air defense for Turkey and then invade Northern Iraq. Um, and it basically was going to be a big pincher movement. So like, right. So you have, uh, one AD coming in from the North. And I think it was the 82nd at that point was going to be coming in from the South and, you know, the Marine, uh, units and et cetera, the, the big part of the invasion coming from the South. Right. Um, so they sent my unit, my battalion got sent, at least my part of the time, uh, we went into Turkey, provided air defense, uh, assets and stood up a real quote unquote, real mission that we didn't, you know, didn't actually have to shoot anything down, um, in Turkey. Um, and then long story short for geopolitical reasons, the Turks, they would let us in because we were providing something of value, meaning right. in their cities from getting blown up by scuds. Mm -hmm but they would not let any offensive forces come in from the, from the U S mm -hmm. so Eric's unit, uh, released his equipment floated around the Mediterranean, um, for a couple months and then ultimately got rerouted, uh, back through Kuwait to come through the same Southern route that the main part of the invasion did. Yeah. Um, and, but because the scud threat had been eliminated by that point, my unit got sent home. <laughs> oh. <laughs> So yeah, so we were all, you know, amped up, juiced up, ready to go. And, you know, like we were on mission, like mm -hmm. earned a deployment patch, I guess, you know, but it was a pretty, uh, uneventful trip, you know, it was high stress, high anxiety, but not like, you know, I didn't get shot at nothing, you know, right. particularly dangerous, um, did that for a couple months. And then I was back in Germany. And that was your first deployment. That was my first deployment. Yeah. Okay. Was it what yeah. you anticipated? You kind of like think you're like ready to like this. Yeah. There's a lot of anticipation that goes along with it. And then there's sort of this letdown. Yeah, man. It, I, I it's it, honestly, sometimes it's hard to remember what you thought it was going to be. Yeah. What I know it was, was I remember flying in a black on a black dot blacked out, uh, plane landing at Insterlich air base, uh, to meet our equipment and go stage, um, and sitting with an M16 between my legs and going, okay, this is real. Like, this is real. Right. Um, and then I also remember, you know, hanging out in Turkey for a couple months, you know, pulling 12 hour shifts. Like it wasn't like, it wasn't sexy. It was hard work, but, and then going home. Um, and it, I remember, you know, there was a lot of downtime and a lot of boredom. 
you know, even when you're on shift. Um, so, I mean, I guess in that respect, no, I don't think that's, that's <laughs> when I was all juiced up after, you know, the nine 11 hit, that was not what I, <laughs> I, was, like, I was amped up and ready to do, um, right. you know, and I think for a long time, um, especially, you know, as the war in Iraq, uh, continued and, you know, and we're losing more and more guys and then, you know, surge here, surge there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then obviously Afghanistan, like got also got boosted and a, lot, a bit much bigger presence there. Um, it's, it's hard not to, I, I was really, I felt really guilty for a long time, like a long time. Um, and I, I remember I talked to my grandfather about it and he was a, uh, he was a Navy vet and he had served, uh, in Korea, mm-hmm. uh, and telling him about, it, I was like, and I, and I just felt bad. Um, and I guilty, it just felt guilty. Um, and he, he, you know, he told me, he's like, listen, he's like, you did what you were asked to do and that's all anybody can do. Um, and it's true. And it's, it's sometimes that's hard. That's hard to embrace, I guess. And it's hard to, it's one thing to hear it. It's another thing to actually like, really like, so live it, I guess. We've had, um, we've had a, a previous episode of the Scuttlebutt where we talked with uh, a veteran who never saw combat. That was the title of that episode was vets who didn't see combat and just how they feel like they're, they're in this special club of being in the military. And yet there's this super special club that in some way you want to be a part of, but also you don't want to be a part of. And if you're not a part of it, you also feel kind of left out of it. And that's just a very interesting thing that me as a civilian would not even remotely think about. Um, but I'm sure that that, yeah, at, at that time was working on you in a way. Oh, hundred percent, hundred percent, you know, yeah. especially, so I, I did my first tour. I did four years on active duty and then I, I separated from active duty, um, to go to law school. Um, and for years and years, it, it was really hard to, to, um, to wrap my brain around and to, to reconcile it. But I think what I've, where I've sort of landed is looking back, especially in hindsight is one, I don't think any, I don't think any human being should be out seeking violence and seeking chaos or seeking to be in awful situations. I think those things will come to you, mm-hmm. whether you want them or want them to or not. And the example I sort of always trend back to that always gives me some level of assurance is one: I did what I, I did do what I was asked to do. I was very good at my job. I worked my ass off, um, and I, I you know, full stop. Yeah. I'm proud of my service. Um, but I also so this backstory is my battalion commander at the time. Um, and I won't mention him by name, but was a, an incredibly toxic leader mm-hmm. and he was really, really hard on everybody. Um, and which made my battery commander really, really hard on us. And she was also not a terribly good leader, but neither here nor there, but it made it, it was a tough situation. Um, and part in an example and this sort of wrap, this will come, this will circle back around here in one second is, uh, so our unit was on a, um, wrote to the two air defense battalions in Germany were on a rotation for, uh, essentially a QRF defense of Israel. Mm-hmm. It was really cool. Cause we got to, we got to work with the Israelis all the time. They would come to Germany. We would fly up to Tel Aviv and go train with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then for basically a year, your battalion was on a 48 hour string. So like you on a 48 hour recall, couldn't go, you couldn't travel that far. Everything's got to get approved. Yada, yada, yada. Just a different way, you know, different form of existence for a year so that yeah. you can get to, um, Israel on almost, you know, on very little notice. Yeah. Okay, fine. We were scheduled um, to come off of that before the invasion of Iraq in 03. Okay. And my battalion commander um, remembered vividly what the Patriot, Patriot units did in Israel in the first Gulf War. And they were the heroes. They were like the, you know, they were the major headline of the first Gulf War, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or at least one of them. And so he was convinced that that's where the action was going to be. And he was so dead set on being like front and center of any, you know, any sort of violence, any sort of action, any sort of warfare that he effectively went and just, he would stand on anyone's desk he could get to and just went up the chain, causing a scene and convinced the powers that be to change the standard rotation and keep us on that rotation. Right. So then come the invasion of 03, a couple of batteries from our battalion went, went to Israel and he went with them. And then the rest of us went to, to Turkey. Yeah. All right. So 
he tried that hard. And then what happens in Israel? Nothing. Nothing. Zero. No, they didn't, they didn't fire a single missile and they were even further removed from the fight than we were. Um, so no action. And then the other half is battalion sitting in Turkey. We hang out for a couple of months. Like we're closer to the action. Like we're providing a real world mission. Nothing happens. Like, so we all go home, his entire battalion, the battalion we were supposed to replace shot down more scuds than any other battalion in the United States army had more friendly fire incidents. And if you remember Jessica Lynch, who was the first POW yep. in our sister battalion. Wow. So that's, he was so cheap. You don't, he was trying to go get in the mix so hard that he actually took himself out, right? And so that's one of those sort of the moments that I, at least I look at and I go, listen, you train, you answer the call when it comes, but if you start seeking it out, um, it's just, I just don't think it's good karma. And I think that's allowed me as an, as an older adult to sort of reconcile, you know, the survivor's guilt that also is, is still very real. Mm-hmm. Um- where was Eric at at this point? He, uh, he obviously, uh, saw combat, but how many tours was he doing? And did he stay in after you had gotten out? Yeah. So he stayed in. So he, so, uh, he saw combat on his, on his first tour and a second tour. Um, first tour, you know, as I said, his unit ultimately gets rerouted, uh, through Kuwait and they do end up in Iraq. I don't know how long he was there actually. Um, but pull standard mission there do, uh, takes care of business. And then I got out in 04, he stayed in, um, at some point along the way, he went, he actually got his Ranger tab, mm-hmm. which obviously is a big deal. Got assigned to the 82nd Airborne Division uh, and was leading a troop there uh, and went on his second tour to Iraq in 2007. Um, and he was there, um, I, think, I think his unit had been there for like seven months-ish, um, maybe nine months-ish. I know it was on the, it was on the back end because he'd already come home for R&R. Um, yeah. And then he was on his second tour. His unit was out on patrol. He was doing what good leaders do. He was with his men. Um, and his, uh, they're out on patrol and got, they got ambushed. He took small arms fire. Um, the, his unit, um, in 82nd, 82nd was getting demolished at that time. They had, uh, they had lost a bunch of guys, like just a bunch. I, I think they, I think they lost a dozen guys in less than a month. Um, but Eric uh, was one of them. So he was, he was, uh, he was shot and then he was uh, transported for treatment to a different part of Iraq, but uh, succumbed on the, ne- the set next day. So it was August 29th of 2007 um, that he was killed in action. Um, where were you when you found out? Uh, at home in my, my apartment uh, on a whim. Um, I'd gone back to check my army email um, which was not something I was doing frequently. And there was an email, actually a bunch of, uh, all the for a bunch of former cadets from the program, uh, sharing the news that he had been killed. So that was how I found out. Did you know at that time that you wanted to honor him in some way, or did that come about much later? No, I knew pretty quickly there was something I wanted to do. I, it did take a, what it took a while was figuring out how, mm-hmm. um, you know, two of the things that Eric, the lessons that Eric, I always feel left on me. And I don't think it was just me, but I'll, I'll just speak for myself. Um, was one, uh, the value we talked about this a little bit, the value of pushing yourself. Like Eric was always doing hard stuff, right? Everything, you know, definitely was competitive, but always, and also like to have a lot of fun, but he was always doing the harder thing, like making it a little bit harder, trying to get a little bit stronger, get faster, just do things to challenge himself. Yeah. Um, and he was, also the consummate teammate, um, mm. you know, especially in ROTC, people are always chirping at you about leadership, you know, leadership, 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 um, which is at some point loses any meaning when it, you know, it really is what you do. Um, and he was always, always looking out for other people. So whether it was at PT, um, I remember one day watching him, we finished up one of these rock marches and he is ghost white. And he turns out he had dragged uh, another cadet who was having a tough day had literally dragged this cadet for like three miles. <laughs> and this cadet had chosen to like, you know, not just sort of hold on, but like apparently it put their entire body weight on him. Um, and while that was definitely the right thing to do. And I don't know, he certainly wasn't the only person that would have done that. What he didn't do is bitch or moan or complain. Mm-hmm. And he didn't ask for any attention. He didn't like, not that day. He didn't, he never, never said a word about it. He just look over and you're like, 
holy shit, dude, like you look terrible, you know, force feed him some Gatorade and like get him home. Right. Uh, that was the last year. Like other people were, you know, griping and, and chirping and complaining about that cadet that, you know, Hey, that person should have done X, Y, or Z. He didn't care. He just wanted to help out. Um, so whether it was at PT at the bar, you know, like he was always looking out for everybody else, volunteering on the weekends, you know, so wow. t- I, I always talk about, you know, taking care of our teammates, like in the community, on the battlefield, at PT, in uniform, out of uniform. Um, and that, that left an impression on me because he didn't have to as much smack as we were talking all the time and always having a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. He didn't have to, he didn't have to talk it. You could see it. Um, so that's, yeah, that's, um, you know, when we start, when we talk about creating team foster in the Genesis or what we're trying to do, that's really what it is, is trying to capture some, the legacy of someone who pushed himself to do hard things and push those around them to also be able to accomplish big things and do hard things, um, and taking care of our teammates. Um, and I want to get to that, the, the mission of team foster in a second. Uh, but one question before that concerning your time in service, why did you not make it a career? Um, <laughs> good question. I, so I think it was a combination of one, uh, a really toxic leadership environment, uh, especially the last 18 months I was on active duty. Uh, it was a very hard time. Um, uh, and I was a young, headstrong, uh, egocentric, brash personality without a doubt. Um, mm-hmm. so that was one thing is I, I didn't want to have to deal with the personalities I was dealing with at the time again. And then part of it too, is like, I, I, um, I was working my butt off and it, it drove me insane. I, I, I think it's a little bit of entitlement. I thought that like, well, Hey, I work really hard. I shouldn't just be rewarded with hard work and achievement with more work. Um, mm-hmm. you know, especially as a junior officer, you're getting promoted at the same grade, making the same amount as the slub next to you, whether that person is working their tail off or good at their job either. Yeah. Um, and I, I was focused too much on what other people were doing and how they were, or were not being recognized. Um, so yeah, so I decided to, uh, I decided to, I read a book actually while I was deployed that basically said you could, uh, do whatever you wanted. If you got a law degree, I was like, Oh, that sounds really cool. I mean, I'm going to make a lot of money. Um, so I studied for the LSATs while I was deployed. And then, uh, I took the LSATs, uh, while I was home on R and R. Um, and then I actually got that. So not to hijack, but I, so I completely separated, and then I started at the Philadelphia prosecutor's office, at the DA's office, the prosecutor's office in 07. And very quickly, as soon as my name fell off the IRR roles, I missed being attached to the army. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and so it uh, took me a little bit of time to start reapplying. But in 2012, I came back in uh, this time as an army reservist. Mm-hmm. Um, the second time around as a JAG versus a Patriot Missile Systems operator. Well, how long were you in at that point? Uh, I'm still in. So still in. okay, still yeah. in the reserves. Yeah. So I've got actually just hit my 10 year reserve mark this summer, and then I had four years of active duties, mm-hmm. so 14 total. Oh, awesome! So you've got well, you still have to do six more for 20, right? Yeah, yeah, at least. Yep. Okay. Um, how is it, that's a whole different rabbit hole? I feel like we could dive so much into just that because I'd be interested to hear about your time as as JAG uh, in the Army. Um, but let's uh, let's focus the last bit of time we have here. However, time how much time do you have on Team Foster? So, Team Foster, you start it, um, and what is the mission of it? What? How did you decide on the mission? So, the mission was always going to be about Eric, and yes. to be about Eric, it was about taking care of our teammates. So, very early on, we settled on this. Um, it's not necessarily a mission, but like a mantra of "No hero left behind." That's our tagline. It's providing, you know, so the initial goal was always providing resources to the underserved, providing resources to our veterans that were coming home of whatever era. So certainly our post 9-11 brothers and sisters, but also, you know, Vietnam and, and, and any other, you know, the first Gulf War, any other era of veteran, making sure that they were getting, they were always taken care of. That was, that's, that's the overarching theme. Um, but after being in, you know, so 2014, we got our 501c3, um, and very quickly, um, you know, I, I started doing a lot more research and certainly I knew anecdotally, right. The post-traumatic stress was a challenge for my community. I knew that traumatic brain injuries were a challenge for my community, our community. Um, but what I didn't really, and I, I had heard of service dogs, but I didn't really know that much about them. Um. So in that first year, year and a half, 
started learning more, researching more and realizing one, how incredibly impactful these animals are. Um, and two, how few resources there were out there to make sure that these service dogs can get to injured and disabled veterans. Um, so at, at least at that stage, that's when we pivoted from sort of, Hey, we're just going to sort of glom onto a larger organization with more amorphous, mm -hmm. uh, more, more amorphous mission to know we're going to keep this super tailored, super laser focused and on something that one is super impactful. I keep using the word super is very impactful, incredibly impactful, but also something we can reach out and touch, mm -hmm. right? We had, I had seen, uh, I had heard the stories and I'm not here to disparage any other nonprofit. I'd heard the stories about other larger nonprofits behind the scenes and the problems that we're having before they get laid out in national news and they get absolutely crushed uh, for good reason. Yeah. Um, so it was really important to us that we know we need to do something that not only is important that is needed, but it also needs to be visible. Mm -hmm. uh, it needs to be tangible. It needs to be something um, that people, when, so when people show up to our events, they can go, okay, I'm raising money. That's the type of person that I'm going to be helping. And this is how I'm going to be helping them. You can literally see it and touch it. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's, um, so our mission, uh, you know, our official mission is, you know, taking care of our teammates and bringing together veterans, civilians, um, to help and service dogs to help the underserved population, um, you know, an underserved need. Um, and we do that through provide raising money to provide service dogs to vets. We also, uh, provide grants, uh, mm -hmm. to veterans, uh, with all sorts of, um, uh, all sorts of needs, you know, whether it's a car, whether it's a rent payment, mortgage payment, veterinary bills, hospital bills, we step in and help veterans out with those as well. Okay. So it's not just about, not just about service animals. Correct. Yeah. So the way we, uh, we have sort of a, a bilateral approach. The first is on the front end, right? We partner with service dog organizations. And the, one of the things that we've evolved into is one vetting those organizations. There is no regulation for the service dog industry. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a whole nother rabbit hole, but we have taken it upon ourselves to one, do the research so that we know that we as an organization are ensuring that best practices, both business practices, training practices are taking place with, with our partners. Mm -hmm. So we make sure that they can do that and do their job and do it right. But then we also partner with the veteran once they've graduated, once they've been partnered with their dog, um, the, our partner organizations, their jobs essentially done, right? Like they've handed off the, the baton to the dog, but that rehabilitation for vets with post-traumatic stress or traumatic brain injury is rarely, if ever a straight line. Um, so we have a got your six program. Um, so we provide resources, um, whether it's directing you to the right place to get help or whether it's pro providing direct aid. So again, you know, uh, financial, typically, uh, we will pay, you know, like I said, we pay for cars, we pay for houses, we pay for apartments, mortgages, uh, veterinary bills, whatever. Yeah. Um, so that with the goal being that those veterans should never have to choose between their service dog and anything else in their life. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, that's not something that, that's certainly not something that should have to deal with. So we make sure that happens. How did you decide who to partner with first? And, and what was that relationship built on uh, with the first animal, like service animal organization? Yeah. So the first organization we partner with, we don't work with anymore um, because of how much we learned in that process. Okay. Um, so the first one was just something, it was local and easy to Google. Mm -hmm. uh, so what we learned through that process is the importance of best training practices, best business practices of being transparent, um, and of being clear communicators across the board. Um, so when we look at organization partners now, and if you look at our partners, uh, including Susquehanna service dogs, warrior canine connection, guardian angels, medical service dogs, mm -hmm. all of them, uh, one maintain accreditations, which are not required at all. Um, but are a, objective way to verify what's happening behind closed doors, you know, and when right. nobody else is watching. Um, but then we also do our own research, like looking at their financial records, looking at their personnel, look, you know, ch checking referrals, doing all the, you know, these things that we, based on the experience that we've gathered over the last eight, nine, 10 years, mm -hmm. um, to make sure that they are doing that. And then all of the, all of our partnerships are contingent on, on maintaining those best practices. Right. Um, because the worst thing you can do, and you've seen this across the country, is more attention gets drawn to post-traumatic stress and more the every you know veteran being a vet. It's never been a better time to be a veteran, right? So mm -hmm. being a veteran is sexy. Mental health is sexy. 
dogs are sexy. So people, all sorts of actors want to get into this sphere. Right. Somebody's got to be the arbiter, right? Somebody has to make sure that things are getting done right. Because otherwise, sometimes ill-intended or sometimes not, you know, veterans are the ones who suffer. Um, If they're, if they're provided, they spend a bunch of money and get a dog um, that doesn't work. Like you're not helping somebody rehabilitate from post-traumatic stress by providing them a shitty dog. Um, So that's where we sort of try to fill that gap. Whenever you decided to name the organization team foster, did you talk with Eric's family? Uh, I did after I, I listen, uh, probably not the way I should have done it. It was after the fact. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, so the, so the genesis of the organization was just, a. a um, I'd gotten into cycling in 2013. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the cycling community, riding hundred miles is sort of a benchmark. It's sort of like running a marathon in the running community. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard. It's not like outlandishly hard, but it's, it's challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were going to, the group, there was a group of us that would ride together and, uh, we were looking, I was looking at my first hundred mile ride and it so happened that it lined up with the, uh, anniversary of Eric's death. Um, so I said to my friends, I was like, Hey, why don't we do it on that day? And why don't we make it like a memorial ride to my buddy? He was killed in action. Um, they had heard about him. I, you know, I wear the, uh, his bracelet, you know, it wasn't a secret. Um, and they're like, yeah, they were all about it. And then as we got closer, I realized if it was really going to be about Eric, it wasn't just about the physicality. It wasn't just about challenging ourselves. I, we needed to do something to give back. Um, so I sent out a couple of emails and next thing you know, we raised like three or $4,000. Um, and it felt really good. So I took that sort of energy, that motivation was like, okay, th- this needs to be a thing. Then we go get our 501c3, you know, start uh, incorporating, getting all the, all the formalities. Then <laughs> I reached out to Eric's family um, and I'm like, Hey, Oh, by the way, uh, I, I did this thing. I hope you're okay with it. Is it cool? <laughs> yeah. Um, and they were, they were stoked. Uh, they were really, yeah. really, they've all, and they really supported. They've always been really supportive, which is really neat. Um, especially cause they are very, um, his parents, especially some of his family's a little bit more is more comfortable being forward facing, mm-hmm. but his parents, especially don't, they don't want to be at the forefront. It's hard. It's still hard. Um, and I, I, you know, I'll never, you know, certainly not going to try to change that. Um, right. So yeah, that was, again, long answer, a little bit of a circuitous route. Well, no, it's because it, it's very interesting is you hear uh, Team Foster, you hear that you're connecting veterans with, you know, services or service animals, but you don't necessarily correlate that with bike riding or cycling. No, it's, it's sort of everything we have sort of backed our way into a lot of this. Um, yeah. It was Team Foster was never set out to, you know, the day it happened, like the day we rode, it wasn't like something we planned out a year ahead of time. I sort of came together in the last few weeks getting incorporated. And, and when I initially was like, Hey, we should make a 501 C three. We're incorporated as captain Eric Foster Memorial ride. It was just like, Oh, we're just going to do this ride every year. Mm-hmm. And it then fast forward. Now we start adding uh, you know, bar event that we do every year. Fast forward um, five years ago, we started adding rough ride, which is a second uh, big fundraising event that we do. And now again, we just sort of backed our way into it. Like, Hey, let's, um, we want to drive attention to the hundred mile cycling event. Let's get a stationary bike and run a hundred and ride it for 24 hours in a store window someplace. Mm-hmm. Well, that turned into, Oh, we got this gorgeous space given to us in downtown Philadelphia and a studio is willing to give us all their spin bikes. Oh, so why don't in six weeks from now, why don't we have everybody ride for 24 hours? Um, and so the first year was, you know, eight teams. And then the next year it was, uh, 18 teams. And then it was 25 teams. Um, and with and the recent one completed in Pittsburgh, how many teams were a part of our rough ride? Yeah. So, so yeah, so we did, we've done it five years in Philly. Um, last year's Philly event raised like $150,000. Mm-hmm. And then this was our second year in Pittsburgh. Um, and we already have 25 teams this year and raised, uh, om- like almost $85,000. Wow. Um, so yeah, so it's, uh, I, there's not always been uh, a rhyme or reason to like how, it, how things have happened. It's just, it's been pretty organic, uh, but it's also kind of cool to watch. Totally. And, and for our listeners of the, on the podcast here, I, I, you know, came into the rough ride. Uh, Nick invited me into, to just do our VBC shtick. We came in and hosted an hour during the ride and just went around the room and talked to veterans while they were cycling, which was a lot of fun. Um, and that's what I found so interesting about the, the whole event. Not only were there a lot of, uh, there were a lot of booths, there was a lot of sponsors, there were a lot of people. It was on University of Pitt's campus. So there was a lot of young people there, which made me really excited because as, as I said at the event, it was 
We have so few people serving in the military. We have such a big military civilian divide, which we've talked about here on the podcast. It was great to be able to talk about veterans, talk about what was going on in the veteran community, seeing so many people supporting a mission of helping veterans through Team Foster, through also their love of cycling, um, which I just found, you know, that's where it's like all of these things have come together for your organization just wonderfully. Yeah, I th- and I think we're really lucky in that. Uh, so my philosophy on all of this, and I, is that if you give people a chance to do good, they will take advantage of it. They will, they will do good. People want to make a positive impact. They want to be a part. Sometimes you just have to like get it. You just have to get it in their face. Mm-hmm. Um, we're very lucky that we have a number of different ways to do that, right? So if it's a 24-hour spin event, yes, but it's a team-based event, right? So you don't have to ride for 24 hours. You don't even have to ride for an hour. You can ride for five minutes and be part mm-hmm. of the team. So it's accessible to everybody. So if you like spinning, great. If you don't like spinning, it's okay just to hang out and tailgate and have some drinks and have some food. If you like dogs, oh, wait, most people like dogs or a lot of people. I don't know. No offense to all you non-dog lovers out there that are listening. <laughs> don't get worked up. Um, there's, you know, there's puppies and like, so we bring, you know, we're able to bring out the dogs that are in training. So they're able to like, you know, get cuddled and hang out and like, just, you know, be, uh, do dog things. Um, but then it's also, you know, then there's the military angle. Um, and I, you know, we talked, touched on it a minute ago, but like being a veteran has never been sexier than it is right now. Um, and so it's an opportunity to, for people to support vets in a very direct way, but doing it in a way that that's accessible to them. Um, and that it's fun, you know, it's music and live bands and DJs and food and drinks and games. And, um, and it's so, yeah, so we're really lucky that we just have all these sort of avenues of approach where people can find sort of find, Hey, I really like this. And I really like this. And this gives me an opportunity to get back. I think many people listening just might be a little bit jealous of you because they were like, he took like 10 passions of his and threw them all together on a, on an incredible pizza. And then just is like, Hey, everybody come and hang (laughs) and enjoy this incredible competitive fun atmosphere of like people, you know, doing good. It's, and it's one of those things people, and you, you got to see it now up close yep. and personal, Sean, but like people are always uh, skeptical. And I was the first year we did it. I was like, okay, this is going to be more about the physicality. It's going to be more about just grinding it out and, you know, staring at a scoreboard. And instead what we, what we realized literally year one was that it is a, the vibe, the energy of this event is just so, so naturally mm-hmm. contagious is naturally so vibrant that people want to be there. They're, they want to hang out. They want to ride, even if they're not a cyclist. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. And, and yeah, I, I'm incredibly lucky, Sean. I, so up until two years ago, um, so I was in Guantanamo Bay. I came home in the middle of the summer of 2020. Um, and our, the organization had gotten too big to not, we were all volunteers up to that point, And we got too big not to have somebody minding the store, like taking care of all the back end right. administrative, dotting all the I's, crossing all the T's. Um, and we we're also leaving a lot of opportunities on the table. Um, so actually I left law full-time. Um, and now this is my full-time job. So I get to do this. I get to talk about team foster every day. Um, yeah. and it's incredibly fulfilling. Um, I get to meet people that are so, f- I, it's, you'd be I just, um, you've seen it, but you, you're just amazed by how giving people are and how people do. They just crave, they want to be a part of something. They just need somebody to offer it to them. And like sometimes take it to them and be like, okay, here's your opportunity to give back and to make a difference. Um, yeah. And I get to, you know, I get to ride my bike and I get to be competitive. I get to raise money. I get to talk to people. Um, you know, I must, especially I get to talk about Eric, you know, and every say, time that, I, yeah. And then the, just the icing there is just Eric's in that background. Eric's sort of just a, the, like the, the, the soul of him is a part of this. Yeah. Which, and yeah. I, I tell people all the time and I had this last time I saw his parents, I, it's like, you know, like, listen, I, I get to be the face of this a lot and I get to be the one talking about it. I, and I appreciate that, but really what it is, is just another conduit, right? Just another opportunity. Every, every time you talk about him, every time we are paying a veteran's mortgage, every time we are partnering a dog with a veteran, every time that vet is rehabilitating from all of these massive challenges, um, that's Eric. Like mm-hmm. he's, he's responsible for all of it. And it's, it's just the coolest, you know, it's the coolest thing. Uh, what would he have said, do you think, uh, having an organization named after him and just doing, you know, so much good in the community and for veterans? Uh, I think he'd tell me to take his name off of it. <laughs> I don't think he'd want all the accolades. Um, but he's, yeah, he's the guy who carried this, uh, the cadet the whole way and yep. didn't say a word about it. Yeah. I think, uh, knowing Eric, he'd be over, uh, 
running his mouth a lot and then grabbing me like, yo, dude, you don't have to, you don't have to mention my name. I'm just, right. <laughs> I'm just here to, just here to help. Um, but he deserves it. You know, um, he, it's, I've met so many people over the years, you know, people that he grew up with, uh, people that served, you know, uh, with him or under him. And everybody says, you know, everybody's got their own version of like the person, right. And the personality sets and the, and the interactions, mm -hmm. but it all, you know, the commonality is like, he was, he was a leader's leader. He was a soldier, soldier. He took care of people. And that was, that was always priority. Number one, um, you know, it's people and the mission and, and that's, and, and it oozed out of him and it, and it impacted a lot of people. Nick, always talking to you makes me want to run through a wall. Thank you for the energy. I needed that boost here on a Friday <laughs> afternoon. I'm going to go like run my dog around the, around the block. Um, how do people uh, help and support team foster? What can they do? What kind of events do you have coming up? Yes. Yeah, a great question. So, uh, um, you can find us on social. Our, our handle is we are team foster on Facebook, social, uh, Facebook, Insta, and Twitter. Mm -hmm. Um, you can also go to our website, which is at teamfoster.org. Uh, if you want to make a donation, that's a great, easy place to do it. Just hit donate in the top, right. Um, and then we've got lots of interesting stuff going on. Um, our next big event is actually going to be around the army Navy game, which is here mm. in Philadelphia. So we're going to be hosting a tailgate. So, uh, Sean, if you want to come down for the army Navy game, man, we'd love to have you have some drinks. I'll uh, be, uh, we'll, we'll post the official tickets here in the next week or two, but there'll be all inclusive beer, DJ food, uh, a hot RV, you know, which keeps you out from, cause it's almost always frigid. Yeah. <laughs> right. Army, Navy game. Okay. You didn't mean like a hot RV, like a sexy RV. You meant like an actual warm RV. <laughs> yeah, that you warm, can yeah. see. Someplace to warm your hands up. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, if you want to show up and make it sexy, Sean, like that's okay. I can't bring much sexy anymore. I'm like, you know, <laughs> that's, that's in the past. <laughs> was, it, was it ever there? Yeah, uh, no, maybe not. It was, I kind of bring a, <laughs> you know, a, a slow lackadaisical pop tart esque. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so that's the, that's the next big event we've got is an army Navy game. And then, you know, we're already, uh, priming up for 2023. So we'll have our rough ride Philly event. We'll, um, rough ride Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. We'll do our foster 100, which is the cycling event. Um, and then I think we're going to do, we're going to do a capital to capital ride. So we're going to ride from Philadelphia, the former capital to Washington DC, the current capital. Nice. Um, and then we'll do another ride we call oil to iron. So we're going to ride from, Oil City, which is where Eric was born um, and is now buried. Uh, and it's 100 miles from Oil City to Pitt, uh, where we commissioned. Um, so we call that the Oil to Iron Ride. It's, it's actually oh, very, very cool. challenging, but gorgeous mm -hmm. ride. It's a really, really pretty country. Yeah, coming down from Oil City down to Pittsburgh, I think that's, I don't think it's mostly downhill. You're in Appalachia territory-ish, uh, so no, it's up and down, or is it all it, uphill? Yeah, no, it's, yeah. it's up and down. There's about 6,000 feet of climbing, so oh, okay. uh, pretty significant amount of elevation for that for that distance. Okay. So anybody looking for a challenge, if you found this podcast, you know, out West and you're like, Hey, I want to do something that supports a good organization. Sign up for this. They, they oil to iron. I like that idea. I like that title too. Um, there's like a lot of things you guys have going on. So, it, you know, listeners, uh, check out their website. Uh, what's the website? It's team. Yep. Teamfoster.org. Yep. Go to teamfoster.org. Check out all of the amazing things that they have going supporting veterans. Um, I think it's such an, just a, a wonderful way to, to honor somebody who, who meant so much to you. And just sounds like, I, I wish I could have met him. Um, just sounds like an all around amazing guy. He really was. He really was. Sean. And Sean, I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, oh, certainly. And talk about what our organization, talk about Eric. So thanks. Thanks to everything you guys do. We appreciate you very much. Of course. And uh, check us out on another episode of The Scuttlebutt coming up. Please like, share, subscribe, ring the bell on YouTube so you're the first to know whenever we release new episodes. And you can always reach out to me at Sean, S-H-A-U-N at veteransbreakfastclub.org. Nick, any final thoughts before we before we uh, get off today? No, man. I just I appreciate you and I appreciate your whole team for everything you guys do. Um, you know, our, our veterans need sincere advocates and you are certainly one of them. So thank you. Thank you, Nick, and uh, we'll see you on, an, on a future episode. Thank you for watching this episode of The Scuttlebutt. I'd like to take a moment to thank both of our sponsors, the first being DND Metal Recycling and Auto Salvage. They began as a small hauling and used auto parts operation in the Pittsburgh area in the late 1970s, but they've grown into a full-service metal recycling company with two locations, Lawrenceville and Tarentum. 
D&D accepts all types of metal, both ferrous and non-ferrous, that may be generated by industrial manufacturing, construction and demolition, small commercial entities, as well as individual customers. They have a wide variety of material handling equipment and are capable of managing any type of job in a timely and efficient manner. You can contact them for quotes and availability at D&D. &D. That's D&D &D Auto Salvage. Dot com. Uh, thank you so much to D&D. &D. Uh, they've been a sponsor for quite some time, and we really appreciate their support. Uh, the second being Tobacco-Free Adagio Health. They are dedicated to reducing and preventing tobacco use and to getting the word out about the hazards of smoking and secondhand smoke. They're all about health. So they want people to quit, and they have classes and nicotine replacement therapy and a popular quit line, which is the easiest number to remember ever, 1-800-QUIT-NOW. They also educate people, children especially, about tobacco use from cigarettes, cigars, pipes, chew, snuff, and other nicotine products like vaping. Finally, Tobacco-Free Adagio Health advocates for public and private policies that ensure healthy places to live, work, and play. You can learn all of what Tobacco-Free Adagio Health offers at tobaccofree.adagiohealth.org, or you can watch our recent episode with Tobacco-Free Adagio Health on the Scuttlebutt, uh, where they talk about a lot of the programs that they offer for those who are looking to quit. Thank you to both of our sponsors for their continued support of the Scuttlebutt podcast. We really appreciate it. Thanks.